for those of you that don't know me, my name is Russ Willett. Um, I serve with an organization called The Navigators. That's my full-time uh, work. My primary role organizationally with them, uh, that's really a brand new role for me, um, is that I'll be serving as their regional leader overseeing uh, our Discipleship for Life ministries in New York and New England. So I'm very excited about that. We'll be looking at uh, working with staff from all over and looking to grow the work of Jesus and spread the gospel uh, around, uh, around this region and uh, eventually around the world. Uh, we promise that we will have the nations as our inheritance. I don't know if we claim the promises of God enough. That's a different sermon. We won't do that today. Locally, uh, my personal ministry, which is just starting, the reason I'm telling you this is that I'm going to beg you for your prayer. Uh, in two weeks, actually a week from Tuesday, we have finally been allowed back onto the campus of the University of Southern Maine to do ministry again. We were asked, um, starting with COVID in, in March of 2020, to step off of campus um, for obvious reasons. And campus was then shut down to all outside organizations. And this will be the first time in two and a half years that we've been able to walk back onto the campus and be able to serve students. Um, and so we're really excited about the opportunity to, to kind of relaunch a little bit. Um, college ministry is weird. Two and a half years later, everybody's graduated from our ministry and we haven't had any new freshmen. Guess how many students we have walking on the campus at USM right now? <laughs> yeah, that's it. But God is magnificent. So I beg you for your prayers. Uh, we're, we're walking in, in a lot of ways, cold. When we first launched there in 2010, we had 12 students with us uh, from a time that we'd spent in youth and in other areas. And so anyway, I'm rambling on about that. That's not actually why I'm here today, but I'm begging for your prayers because we launch a week from Tuesday. So that's kind of who I am. Um, in, my, in my training growing up through the Navigators, one of the things that I've been taught as far as if you're going to preach on a, on a given topic, on a given message, what you do is you walk through the different things that God is teaching you personally, and you go, probably somebody else would benefit from this. If God is actually speaking, what's he saying? And maybe I'll share that with you this morning. The difficult thing is it's been a very active time, and normally for a, a talk that goes for two, is it two and a half hours? <laughs> normally for a talk that goes for two and a half hours, I have about four and a half or five pages worth of notes. Today I have almost eight. So, Red Sox don't play until seven um, in the Little League Classic today, so I think we've got plenty of time to, to dig in a little bit, but get comfy, we got some ground to cover. Um, the, the introduction that we, that we chose this morning was just to say, if we're going to make much of Jesus, which is the series that we've been walking through for the last number of weeks, if we're going to make much of Jesus, Jesus actually has to be much. Good grammar there, but you understand what I'm saying. And so I want to look a little bit at that this morning. And I want to walk you through two different conversations that I've had over the course of the last little while, and that's basically what we do as, as navigators. We go around and have conversations, and the conversations basically go like this. How's life? What are you getting out of Scripture right now? Can we pray together? That's it. Usually that takes about two, two and a half hours by the time we walk through it with anybody. But I want to walk you through two conversations that I've had specifically and the Scriptures that we talked about. And as Dylan has already kind of shared with you, it's amazing what happens 
is that if you talk to a bunch of people who are also spending time in Scripture, what ends up happening is you find that everybody's studying the same thing. It's almost like somebody else is in charge of the whole thing. It's almost like there's a divine providence around what the Holy Spirit wants to do, and He begins to go, hey, how are you? How are you? How are you? Now talk about it. Like, hey, see, I'm in charge. And so this morning, you get to experience my ADHD a little bit. As frankly, I've struggled to pare down what things that I've been learning that are meant specifically for me and what things I should share. So, as the Spirit leads this morning, please receive whatever it is that God has for you personally out of His Word this morning. Um, I've recently come off of a time, uh, which is why I haven't seen so many of you, where I was an interim pastor over at Stroudwater Christian Church, and they've recently just brought a new pastor in, and so I've been um, freed from that responsibility, which is nice. And I tell you that only to tell you this. The last six weeks that I was there, I went through and walked through the book of Ephesians. Fascinating book. And so I'll just real quick. The book of Ephesians, there's three chapters that say it's all, these are all the blessings that come from God. God is good. It's about grace and grace alone, not faith. It's, it's by faith and grace and grace alone. That's it. Has nothing to do with what you do. And at the beginning of chapter 4, it says, so live according to your calling. So which is it? Yes. <laughs> there are loads and loads of blessings of following Christ. This is the way now go live. If it's true that He loves us, and if it's true that, we, that, he, that he only shows us the best possible way to live, is it yes? And believe it is. Are there places that we're called just to obey without understanding? Yeah, I don't think we relate to God the same way that we relate to each other. I think there are places that we have to take on faith. In the middle of this book, there's a prayer, and it kind of anchors the whole book. And so I'd like to start by reading that this morning, and then sharing with you the conversation that followed. Starting in Ephesians 3, verse 14, this is the prayer that Paul is praying to the Ephesian church that he's writing to. For this reason, just so we're clear, this reason is because the gospel of Jesus has now been made available to all of you who are not Jewish. That's all of chapter 2, the benefits now extended to all of mankind and not simply to the Jewish nation, God's chosen people. For this reason, Paul, who's been called as a minister of the gospel, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So here we have this bipolar book, letter, it's all about grace, it's all about the blessings, it's all about this, please go do what you're told. And then this prayer stuffed in the middle. 
And on the surface, if we were simply to stay here, we'd say that what Paul is doing is simply allowing, because now the gospel is available to the Gentiles, to those who are not Jewish, my prayer is that you would receive Jesus into your hearts, that this is a salvation prayer for them. However, if you go back to the very first sentence in the book, it says, this is written to the saints and to the faithful followers of Christ that are in Ephesus. They're already believers. Why is Paul praying for believers to accept Jesus? Well, my guess is he's not. That doesn't actually make sense contextually. So what's he doing? And this was the conversation that I got into. And it went around and around a bit. Why on earth is he doing this? Why is it that there would be power required from the Holy Spirit in order to have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith if we've already received Christ? I don't know that we came up with a full answer, to be honest with you, but I'll tell you where we landed. I think what happens is we get caught on either side of Ephesians. I think what happens is that we end up in this place where it's all, it is for freedom you have been set free. I'm quoting scripture. It's for freedom that you have been set free. Therefore, I can be free to do whatever I want. And God will forgive me because it's by grace that I'm forgiven. And so on one side of this road, we have this dangerous cliff over here that if we take it too far, we really end up in harm's way. And then on the other side, therefore, live a life worthy of the way that you've been called. And on the other side of this road, we have an equally dangerous cliff known as legalism, which is you have to follow the rules. Obey. God said, obey, obey. I can point to you that scripturally. How do we stay on the road? If we get too worried about showing too much grace and end up over here, we're danger going into the legalism ditch. If we find out too much, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, there's no grace involved, all of a sudden we end up in danger way over here, falling into this cliff. Are we really gracious or are we to follow the rules? Yes. Yes. Do the rules cease to exist? No, God puts them in place for our protection. He always shows us the best possible way to live. If He loves us, are we free? Is it true that we're forgiven? Is it if we make a mistake, if we goof up? Anybody goofed up this week? You guys went to camp. I know you goofed up at camp. <laughs> I goof up more at camp than anywhere else in the world. Some of the worst fights I've ever been in my life have been at camp. Some of them with him. <laughs> That's not even false. <laughs> am I called to be this? Am I called to be? Yeah. Am I called to give grace? Yeah. There are natural consequences to going too far on this side. There are natural consequences that happen when we just say whatever. There are natural consequences to going on this side as well. Because here's what I believe, and I believe this with all my heart. 
if we actively want to have a conversation about reaching those who don't already know Jesus with the gospel of Jesus, we will actually do far better at proclaiming that message, dealing with their imperfections in a gracious and loving manner, showing them the grace and love of Jesus than we ever will by walking around telling them how wrong they are for not doing what Jesus said. My goal this morning was to walk through three stories of Jesus with you. Three interactions that he had with women along the course of his ministry. After I got done with the first story, I was at seven pages. We're only going to get to one, folks. You want me to go to another one? Call me. We'll have coffee later this week, and we'll go through the other stories. I'll reference them briefly, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. Good news is I've already wandered three pages into my notes without looking at them. So why is this prayer here? The conclusion that we came to, and again, I don't know that it's fully right or fully wrong, but this is the conclusion that we came to as we studied it, and it seems as though there are a lot of commentators who don't disagree, which is nice, is this. Our tanks aren't always full. Those of you that are coming home from camp, again, and have just spent a week running crazy up and down a hill that's like this. If we're talking about soul care as the primary role of Christ and taking care of us, we're talking about body, mind, spirit, and emotion. And if you're not dead tired in at least three or four of those fronts, you haven't been to camp. It's just the way it is. And you haven't been to work, and you haven't interacted with people in your neighborhood, and you haven't... (laughs) It's life, right? And what happens is the levels in our tank just go... And I believe with all my heart that it is absolutely necessary that the power of the Holy Spirit step in and go... Back up again. That is absolutely necessary for us to be engaged with Christ, who I believe is the road that these two cliffs reside on either side of. If we don't keep our eyes on the road, we're going to end up in a ditch. Our eyes have to be fully forward on Christ. So let me walk through these interactions with you, or at least one. If you'll turn with me over to Luke chapter 7. This is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. Starting in verse 36, reading through through the end of the chapter, is a story that uh, is kind of just a first-person testimony of what they saw, passed down through now to you and I. Starting in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, being Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them off with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. And as Jesus often does, he tells a story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One, owned, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Looked up for a second, and there it goes. Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A couple of pieces that we, as we begin talking about this story that we probably should clarify, because if this happens at my house, it's really weird. <laughs> Has anybody ever had anything like this happen where somebody walks into the house while they're dining and starts weeping and anything with your feet <laughs> or anything with kissing and all of a sudden it gets real weird real quick. And so a couple of things culturally that we should probably just at least knock off so that there's an understanding. This type of a meeting would have been not for the public, but would have been public, if that makes sense. And the reason that that is is somehow the dining around the table was an open experience, and it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to kind of be milling around and trying to overhear the conversations that were going on. And if it were between Jesus, who was a little bit of a, a fringe type of a person, and a Pharisee who was the religious elite of the time, and there's probably this thing, there's probably going to be a little bit of attention. So it's likely that this woman wasn't even noticed milling around this kind of outdoor type gathering until she actually approached Jesus. The manner in which they're stationed around the table is also a little bit different. They don't sit around a table in chairs the way we do. They recline, literally. And so what happens is you have the table and then everybody's heads are at the table and their feet kind of shoot out on the little thing that they're sitting on. And so what would have happened was is they would have been sitting around the table doing their thing and she all of a sudden would have come up behind him to his feet. Still seems a little weird in our culture, but so far not all that crazy for that culture. The next piece that happens is a little bit interesting. It talks about this woman as being a woman of the city and a sinner. It's interesting that the Pharisee's thoughts don't revolve around his own sin, first of all. Secondly, it's interesting 
that his association of her is as a woman of the city and a sinner. Most commentators look at this and, and believe as a result of that, the, the way that it is phrased is that she does not belong sexually to anyone. She belongs sexually to everyone. She is a woman of the city, a prostitute, who offers her services to whomever will pay her. Sinner. And now this is the person that's now crying, grabbing his feet, kissing his feet, wiping. This would be even more startling in my house. Wouldn't it? So here's the question. Are we in a place of, hey man, it's just grace. It's just grace. God forgives everything. He's good. He's, in fact, is magnificent. And he forgives. Or is there a place of, um, that's not okay. That lifestyle does not work. Not good. Not only does a number of things to mess up with her life, messes up with other lives as well. Most marriages don't survive well in that type of a situation. So what do we do? Here's the reality, even sitting in this place right now. This room is filled with people who land on one side or the other of the road most of the time. In fact, the majority of places that we will have sharp disagreement within the framework of this congregation will revolve around this issue exclusively. How far is sin allowed to go before we actually call it sin and say, stop it? How rude and inconsiderate are we going to be before we actually start showing the grace that Jesus shows to people? And this is where churches do this. What's the answer? I believe the answer is that we keep our eyes on the road, we keep them focused on Jesus, and we do everything we can to learn from Him. Please hear me in this. One of the biggest issues I have with the way that we read and assess Scripture is when we read the Scripture, say, Jesus is here, Jesus forgives, we should be like Jesus, and forget that we're probably not the Savior in the story. When we read passages about Jesus, we automatically want to put ourselves in the place of Jesus. And I'm about, man, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. And, I want to, and yes, we do want to get there. Absolutely. That's a destination. But please don't forget the middle part where we're not actually the Savior. We're actually the sinner. In this story, we're actually either the Pharisee or the woman. In this story, as you sit and we walk through this, this story that he tells about these people. You ever been there? You ever been that place? This bill's due tomorrow. I can't pay it. I simply can't pay it. Well, try harder. I, don't, I don't, just don't have it. I can't try harder. Well, I'm sure there'll be grace. No, it's owed. They're going to turn my electricity off. Where do we land in the middle of this? We have to keep our eyes on Jesus not just as the thing that we are to mirror and reflect to others, but also as the people who need Him, as those who cannot pay this bill. There's not a one of us, no matter how hard we try, that can pay this bill without Jesus. 
The funny thing is the Pharisee has no clue that he owes anything. Jesus actually walks into the story. And what's funny to me is that he never differentiates between who actually owes more. He just says that the woman owes a lot. Based on the way Jesus deals with the Pharisees and a lot, I honestly wonder if it's reversed as to who owes the most. And even in that statement, you see me starting to swerve one side or the other of this road, don't you? It's that simple, isn't it? We immediately swerve. Stay away from that. Stay away from that. No, just keep your eyes here. What do they teach you when they do, when they do driving school? Where do you keep your eyes? The horizon, right? Keep your eyes ahead. See where you're going. Make sure you're able to adjust to what's in front of you. So what do we do with this? This place where Jesus speaks. From the point where Simon answers the question, the one I suppose from who he canceled the larger debt will love him more. I would argue that the reason for this series at this time, and if I'm wrong, please tell me, it's the same conversation that we're having in regards to the region. It's the same conversation we're having in regards to the ministry at USM. It's the same regards we're having in the conversations around all the different things that are going on in ministry. I would guess for those that are seriously interested in advancing the gospel, this is the conversations being had in every place around. How do we make sure that the people that are charged and put in our care love Jesus more? How can we make them love Jesus more? Does this answer this? Is it possible that people will learn more and love Jesus more dealing with their failure than with their successes? One of the other conversations I wanted to have this morning was around the woman who was caught in adultery. She's brought before Jesus in the temple and set up in front of him and Pharisees and the leaders come and say, hey, the law says woman who does this is to be stoned. What do you say? And by making him be the pronouncer, he would be the one that would have to throw the first stone. If as the rabbi, he made that pronouncement, he would be responsible for throwing the first stone. And what does he do? He turns to them and says, whichever one of you is without sin, you throw the first stone. And then slowly they all walk away. And do you remember what he says to her? Who's left to condemn you? The answer is only the only one who really could. It's just Jesus that's left. Nobody else is there that could condemn her. And Jesus was the only one from the beginning based on that criteria that could. And you know what he says? Neither do I condemn you. Is that the last thing he says? Go and leave your life of sin. Make a change. You saw in the video where they kind of paused the video about halfway through and they did this. He's only just begun. This is the moment that we're after. This is the moment that we're after as a church. That moment where all of a sudden the sin gets set aside, the qualities of love and forgiveness that Jesus offers to anyone who will believe and actually receive the gift 
creates for them a new life where they can all of a sudden say, my life has only just begun. This Jesus is what we are to make much of. This God of new beginnings. We have a new beginning coming that's in a physical building. And I'm going to tell you something. I mean it sincerely. It's going to be awesome. It matters none if we don't step up and actually get to know Jesus and start telling others about him because he changes their lives. We're so worried. We're so worried about being in this place of offending everybody that we don't realize they're going to be pretty stinking offended when they stand before the Lord someday and you didn't tell them anything. Do you love these people that are around you? Do I? That's free. That's not even in my notes. <laughs> what are we called to? Called to go and make disciples. You want to know what the other story I was going to use was? Both of these stories are found in John, I think one in four and one in eight. Uh, chapter 4. I really encourage you to go read them. There's a Samaritan woman at the well at noontime in the middle of the day. Jesus shows up and offers her living water. And she's, yeah, I'd really love that. I wouldn't have to come down here every day because I'll never be thirsty again. I wouldn't have to come down here anymore. And he misses the point. But she asks, where can, you get, where can I get this living water? And you know what he does? He doesn't immediately lay out the gospel in four simple rules. He doesn't show her the bridge illustration or some other thing. This is how you accept Jesus as your personal savior. No. He gets right to the heart of the matter and it says, you know what? You're already searching for it. Go get your husband. And she says, well, you know, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had three and the one that you're with now is currently not your husband either. And gets right to the crux of it. You're already seeking for the living water, but you're seeking it through men. What's the living water that we're seeking? Corporately, individually. And this gets messy really, really fast because I want a nice car and I want a nice house and I want to make sure my kids have all the best things and I want to make sure we've got enough money to take vacation and I want to make sure that we can go do these things and, I wanna, and if I'm not really, really careful, there's a whole different kingdom that's being built on my watch. Grace, or where do we fall on this? But you know what she does? She turns around, goes back into the town, says, I met a man who told me everything I've ever done. Come and meet this man. Did he tell her everything? No, just hit the main thing, the crux of what she had done. So here's my question for you. What's the main thing? What's the main thing? We put our eyes on the road. What are we, what are we driving toward? What are we after? Do we actually know this Jesus? This Jesus of goodness? This Jesus of forgiveness? this Jesus of mercy, this Jesus of love. Do you notice in the second part of the prayer from Ephesians that we started with? What's his prayer? 
that you being rooted and established in love would together with all the saints understand the breadth and height and width and dip, depth, width and depth. Wow. Of the love of Christ. That hinges this book together, this letter together. And that you would be filled with all of the fullness of God. You want to live life overflowing? Put your eyes on that road. Forget about the other stuff. Put your eyes on that road and you will live a life that is full and overflowing. And then you can go and claim your inheritance as the nations. Saw the inner argument going on, but all right, we're going to go. Um, one of the first messages I ever heard in the Navigators was by the founder of the Navigators who died in the 1950s, and it, but it's as applicable now as it ever was. He asked a very simple question. What's the need of the hour? For you individually, for this church, what's the need of the hour? Do we need money? Do we need Sunday school workers? Do we need access into the schools in order to proclaim the, the goodness of Jesus? Do we need better, do we need a bus to be able to transport people from all over the city who can't get here? Do we need more this, more that? Do we need better materials, better promotional stuff? Do we need uh, an advertising budget? Do we, what do we need? His answer is actually really simple, and as I said, I believe it's the same right now. What is needed, in my humble opinion, is an army of men and women who are fully sold out, who are bought in completely, who have received with everything that is in them the forgiveness of the debt that they cannot pay, and have put their eyes fully on Him and are ready to charge ahead, getting to know Him more and more, and therefore share His love with everybody else. That's the need of the hour. God is big enough to manage the budget. God is big enough to manage the need for volunteers. God is big enough to all these things. Do we believe? The very last thing that Jesus says to the woman in the passage, and then we don't hear about her again. Your faith has saved you. What do we believe? I believe with all my heart. That's the heart of this, ser this series. To make much of Jesus. Not in a video. And that was a pretty cool video. But not in a video. At our jobs. In our neighborhoods. Where we live where we live, work, worship, play, whatever, where we are to make the most of Jesus. To a world who frankly can't pay their bills without Him. I'll tell you this story and then we're done. Early uh, mid-1950s, 
the Russians and the, or the Soviets and the United States were in a race to outer space. Anybody remember this historically? And the Russians uh, and the Soviets were actually the first to get into outer space. Uh, a cosmonaut named Yuri Gagorin was the first to get into outer space and then come back down. And what happened afterwards, uh, Khrushchev, who was the premier of the time of, of the Soviet Union, came out with a statement that basically said this. He was very much anti-religion, very much anti-God, and he says this. We've been to outer space. We did not see God there. God does not exist. And that's a rough paraphrase. So please don't hold my feet to the fire on that one. C.S. Lewis, as a result of this, came out and published an article kind of in response to what he said and basically says this, we don't relate to God that way. We seem to think that if we live on the first floor apartment and God is in the second floor apartment, all we got to do is see him is walk up the stairs and look around and we'll be all set. We'll see him. The reality is we actually relate to God the way that Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. In the 30s, or 20s, I guess, one of the first women to attend Oxford University also happened to be a, uh, a detective writer. Her name was Dorothy Sayers. Wrote a number of articles. Her main character in her stories was an individual, uh, an aristocrat, single guy, lonely, kind of crass, um, his name, if I can find it, does not matter. Because <laughs> it's in there somewhere and I'm not going to dig for it. About seven novels into this series of Sir Whatever Whatever, she writes a new character into the story. This character was one of the first women to ever attend Oxford University and wrote detective novels. And what happened over the course of the, the two, three novels that this other character exists is that she goes around helping this guy solve the mysteries, but over the course of time falls in love. They get married. He turns into a different guy. And so here's what happened. This woman, author, Dorothy Sayers, fell in love with this world that she had created in fiction, saw this character, put herself into the pages of the novel because she fell in love with him as she wrote about him. And then inserting herself into the novel falls in love with him, marries him, and in a lot of ways saves him from the misery that he was in beforehand. Do you want to know why God is magnificent today? He was able to do that for real. He saw the world that he created. He loved the world that he created. He loved all the people in the world but the only way that he could actually be with them is to enter the story himself as a man and as God and give himself 
in every way that he could to make sure that our debts are paid. This is why God is magnificent. This is why he can never be praised enough. Because he not only has the love, he has the power to make that story come true for each of us. My prayer for you today is that you keep your eyes on the road. Pursue, chase, love the one who pursued, chase, and loves you. Can I pray with you? For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Amen. Amen.